My name is John Herbst. I'm the director of the Dino Patrizio Center, Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. This is panel three, where we talk about whether or not Minsk is going to be the vehicle for resolving the crisis of the Kremlin's aggression in Ukraine. And we're very fortunate to have with us a quite, quite distinguished panel. Um, to my immediate left is Ambassador Steve Pfeiffer, who was our US <coughs> ambassador to Ukraine in the late 1990s. And then we have um, Mr. Inozemsev, Dr. Inozemsev, Vladislav Inozemsev, uh, who is currently a, a senior fellow here at the Atlantic Council. And on the screen, we have Ambassador Regenbrecht from Berlin, who is the German representative for the Minsk process. And we will start with Ambassador Regenbrecht. Johannes, please, over to you. And thank you for joining us for Berlin. I know it's, what, 5.30 in the afternoon there. Well, yeah, you're most, uh, you're most welcome. We have still daylight here. Uh, it's a very sunny spring day in Berlin. That's... So please, over to you, sir. Okay, thank you very much. Um, yeah, thank you for uh, thank you for inviting me and and you have and for having you um, having me with with you there. Just let me uh, make uh, very briefly. Um, couple of points uh, on on Minsk and uh, on the prospects um, so first uh, how would we do we see the the current situation so on the security side um, um, increasingly fragile situation although still the um, it's the 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 situation is still is broadly under control but the ceasefire is uh, getting more and more fragile. Numbers of um, the numbers of ceasefire violations are on steep rise, and the risk of escalation is growing uh, if we um, and uh, parties um, do not act. On the political side, the process unfortunately stalled, um, partially uh, due to political turbulences in Kiev, partially due to the. A difficult uh, security situation uh, in the Donbass. Um, there is a risk of uh, loss of political credibility, um, including the Normandy format, unless the political process is energized. Um, my second point, um, what is on the agenda now in the aftermath of the Normandy foreign ministers meeting in Paris? So uh, ministers came to Paris uh, on um, March 3rd for the Normandy meeting with, um, at least from our side, with uh, rather high expectations. Uh, the goal was to reach concrete decisions on stabilizing the ceasefire as well as on modalities and security modalities for local elections. Um, against this background uh, of these expectations, the results were rather sobering and Minister Steinmeier in his public declaration in Paris was uh, quite outspoken. Neither side, unfortunately, was ready to take the necessary steps at this moment. However, there were some positive moments um, and uh, on which we will try to build now, in, particularly, in particular in the security field. field uh, that will hopefully give us margin to advance uh, also in the political field. These include um, the um, um, declaration of intent or the consensus to finalize the withdrawal of heavy and light weapons that to be verified by the special monitoring mission, the willingness in principle to disengage troops at hotspots with monitoring by the SMM, um, the deputy chief monitor, Alexander Hook, as you know, has just visited the JCCC at Soledad to follow up and to draft a concept. 
And there was uh, an endorsement of the agreements uh, by the trilateral content group on the time frame and principles for mine action, as well as on stopping live fire exercises um, at um, or close to the line of uh, contact. So the discussion, however, on modalities uh, for local elections were extremely difficult and cumbersome, but at least we managed to task the OECE Secretariat to work on a security concept for elections um, in uh, these weeks. Um, time is short and we should insist to have elections uh, as soon as possible, but on the proviso, of course, of, uh, uh, of considerably and sustainably uh, improving the security situation. Now, um, let me add um, two more points. Where are the obstacles and challenges we are confronted with? I think we have to say that um, there is a, a lack of ownership and a lack even of interest, genuine interest of both sides to advance with the settlement uh, of the conflict. Um, in Kiev, we are all aware uh, that the internal situation is, is difficult for the president, for the government. So um, um, Minsk is a very difficult issue to, to discuss, very difficult issue to handle, uh, given the, the current situation. And on the other side, Moscow is leaning back, uh, increasing its criticism vis-a-vis uh, -vis Ukraine uh, with a reproach of being in non-compliance with Minsk, while at the same time fueling the conflict and um, by far not doing enough to the contrary to stop the violence uh, on the ground. So um, we need to overcome the deadlock both on security and on the political process. So my last point, what ideas do we, do we have how to overcome the deadlock? I think uh, we should increase and we will increase our operational focus on security. Uh, this is key, uh, particularly given the objective circumstances. Um, I don't go into the details, I'm sure you have discussed uh, the situation on the ground uh, in detail and thoroughly uh, in the first and, and over the second panel, but it is key to focus on security. Um, but at the same time, without losing uh, uh, the political process out of sight. And with that, uh, I mean the election modalities. Um, we um, would urge our Ukrainian friends not to forget about the political side. Uh, sequencing is helpful and is necessary when it comes to security and the political process, but uh, certainly only up to a certain extent. Uh, we have to get prepared uh, and Ukraine needs much more cloud and initiative on the political side uh, in order to uh, overcome the current deadlock while, of course, uh, focusing with our help uh, the attention on the security side. We need to push for ownership. Uh, we need to increase the political leverage and the momentum uh, to, to say so we need to narrow the corridor to, to ask the side um, to, 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 to develop more initiative, including uh, the working groups in, in Minsk, who unfortunately, and I look first of all to the political working group, are by far not uh, doing enough. At the same time, uh, we are very keen to balance our messaging, not using um, too much pressure 
vis-à-vis uh, -vis Ukraine, um, making clear that Russia has to deliver first and foremost, uh, and mainly on security, but also on elections. I just recall that the so-called fake elections in Donetsk, slated for 2nd of April, have not been uh, called off so far. And in Luhansk, uh, they were just postponed another time. So the ball is very much um, in the court of uh, Moscow. And uh, Minister Steinmeier will make this clear when in Moscow next week. Uh, this was just published through the news agencies that Minister Steinmeier will be in Moscow on Wednesday and Thursday uh, of um, next week. And my last point, of course, sanctions are our main leverage and our main use, uh, means of pressure while ma maintaining the political process and the dialogue. So um, we stick to our mantra that uh, we maintain uh, sanctions uh, uh, as long um, and as far as Minsk is not fully uh, being implemented. Having said this, um, I would just um, uh, hint to the meeting that just took place in Brussels uh, between uh, President Poroshenko and Presidents Hollande and Chancellor Merkel in, uh, there in, in the Belgian capital. Um, and um, everybody reiterated uh, his, uh, her commitment to the Minsk uh, process, including the, the ceasefire, including withdrawal of weapons, including, of course, access of OECD monitors, uh, including to, to the border area and uh, local elections. So that's all from my side. Thank you for your attention. Uh, thank you, Johannes. That was very good. Um, Slava, over to you. Okay. Uh, okay, thank you so much um, uh, for making me a part of this discussion. Uh, it's an interesting question about uh, what can we expect from the Minsk agreements and uh, what may be the further moves both from Russian and Ukrainian side and from the European counterparts. Uh, my personal point of view, it's just my personal point of view, is that the Minsk agreement were, you know, uh, were empty. They were unoperational from the very beginning. Uh, they were uh, concluded, they were uh, reached uh, in a very dramatic uh, time of escalation of uh, Ukrainian conflict. And it was a very good means to provide a ceasefire there in, in, in Donbass. And they succeeded in this. But as a roadmap, I don't think they may be considered as, a, as something valuable. Because we have a lot of problems and uh, internal contradictions inside this, inside this document. First of all, and I think it was already mentioned here, that Russia, which is definitely a part of the conflict, is not a part of the negotiation, negotiating treaty and not a part of... Uh, the concluding, uh, not, not a part of the treaty. Uh, the second point was about, for example, the elections. Uh, of course, one can say that uh, they may be conducted under Ukrainian law, but in this case, uh, you should uh, understand that Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, so-called republics, they are only part of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts in, in, in Ukraine. So therefore, what uh, the leaders of these republics uh, will um, run for, for what positions? For mayor of Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, for uh, leaders of the local councils, or what for? So uh, it's impossible to have Luhansk and Donetsk republics inside Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts in Ukraine uh, with uh, um, a state uh, oblast administration in force. So this was also, I think, a, a point which cannot be advanced at all. The point with the uh, with idea of um, clearing all the 
uh, wrongdoings and all the crimes which were uh, concluded during this, uh, this conflict is also unclear point because, of course, maybe all, everybody who was active in uh, all this military engagement uh, can be pardoned uh, by this agreement. But what about economic crimes uh, ongoing on this territory? What about the plundering of the Ukrainian factories, transforming them to Russia and so on and so forth? So there are a lot of problems which are actually not covered by, uh, by the treaty, by the document. Of course, uh, the re-establishing of Ukrainian control over the border, it's also a crucial, the most crucial, I think, uh, element of the treaty, which also can be uh, eventually fulfilled unless Russia will cease, uh, will, will terminate uh, its operations across the border and supplying the separatists with all they, they need and uh, take out goods from Ukrainian side uh, to the Russian territory. So my point actually is that it was a good framework for a ceasefire, for a temporary ceasefire, but it cannot be considered to be a valuable roadmap, even if it is extended uh, till the whole year of 2016, or even if it is extended till 2020, it will not uh, bear any, uh, any real fruits uh, of success, because uh, both sides and the leaders of the separatist republics, they definitely don't want means to be implemented. And it was also said today, and it's true. So therefore, I think that uh, we have now, we are now in a deadlock, and I cannot imagine any possible success and any possible move forward on the base of Minsk, uh, Minsk Treaty and Minsk uh, Agreement. So my point is that if uh, the parties, if the Europeans, if the Ukrainians uh, wants to go, want to go forward, uh, the task is not to fulfill the Minsk treaties, which is impossible, but to completely renegotiate uh, the, the issue and to put forward some new proposals and to see, uh, seek for some new solutions, uh, which may be uh, much, uh, from which may be implemented in much longer time, in a much longer perspective, uh, but uh, which will be much more realistic. Uh, in any case, I, uh, what, what I can propose, I will uh, say a few words on this, just a few words, because uh, I, I understand that this solution may be quite unpopular among our Ukrainian friends, but my point is that of, uh, effectively, Ukrainian government really is not in control of, of, the, uh, of its territories in the East, and so the, the best uh, starting point uh, for the new renegotiation is just to recognize this fact that, the, that uh, the territory of Lugansk and Donetsk republics are in fact not Ukraine, as the Crimea is not Ukraine these days, de facto. Uh, I, I'm not a supporter of Russian annexation of Crimea. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think it was a, a drastic violation of international law, but nevertheless, uh, the reality is now that Kiev doesn't control neither Crimea nor the Donetsk and Lugansk republics. So maybe uh, it's better just to recognize this fact, uh, to recognize, even to recognize these strange entities in the East, and to uh, change the Ukrainian constitution, in, uh, make some amendments, uh, stating that as it was in the Federal Republic of Germany in the basic law of 1949, that we can, in the future, we can once again uh, reintegrate these territories back into Ukraine and into the state of Ukraine, but now, formally and informally, they are not under Ukrainian control. It's a situation like it was by West Germany and German Democratic Republic. 
So there is another territory. You, you may establish diplomatic relations with it or not. You may establish trade relations with it or not. But nevertheless, it's much better, for, from my point of view, for the Ukrainians, just to put Ukraine in new borders and go to Europe, to NATO, drift westwards as a new Ukrainian entity without these two republics. Uh, once again, temporarily, once again on the ground of constitutional amendments. And then to renegotiate ceasefire, the regime of the border, uh, OSCE can be in charge for, you know, for human rights there and so on and so forth. But the major problem is just to show Mr. Putin and to Russia, which is actually a part of the conflict, that Ukraine can seize these territories, which actually will make a big two-edged headache for Mr. Putin. First of all, because the territory is effectively ruined, and Ukraine will never be capable in coming 10 or 15 years to rebuild it without ruining its own economy completely. So if Mr. Putin was responsible for all the damage in Donetsk, he should be in charge of it. And this is a good message for him because he doesn't want it, actually. And just shifting this Ukrainian position to a more concrete and to a more harsh position, maybe will change the Russian stance as, as well. The second point is that if Ukraine is successful in its European reforms, uh, in uh, seeking application and seeking uh, advancement towards the EU membership, it will be a very big blow to Russia because Russia actually doesn't want Ukraine to be successful, European and prosperous states. State. And uh, to have Donetsk and Luhansk territories inside Ukraine is a major prerequisite. Ukraine will never be a prosperous, happy, and European state. So therefore, I think that uh, the best way to, do, to go forward is to shut down uh, the debate on Minsk, to turn this page, and to find out completely new framework, which, will be may, which may be very challenging to Russia. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Dimitsenko, thank you very much. Um, that was excellent. Steve? Okay, well, let me uh, start out uh, by first talking about policy, then I'll talk about uh, the uh, situation on the ground. And I guess the first point I, th I would make on policy is I think that there are, in fact, significant arguments for the West continuing to support implementation of the Minsk II agreement. Uh, and I agree that the, the agreement has significant flaws. It does not provide a clear roadmap to uh, a settlement, uh, but it merits support because it's the only agreement now on the table. Uh, and if Minsk II collapses, I don't see how you get to Minsk III. Uh, and so and I, I think there may be a tr attraction to trying for a brand new negotiation, but I'm not sure you know, how that negotiation puts Ukraine in a stronger position to negotiate a better arrangement than President Poroshenko agreed to in February of last year. Uh, so I think as a policy matter, at least for the time being, the West should continue to try to push both all the parties to implement the agreement and see if we can make progress. Now, that's the policy argument. Uh, I think when I look on at the actual agreement and where the situation is today in analytical terms, it's very, very hard to see Minsk II being implemented. Uh, and that's first and foremost because on the Russian and separatist side, there appears to be no significant interest in implementing that mm -hmm. agreement. And I'd just start with the first three points of Minsk II. Uh, one, uh, a ceasefire was supposed to take an effect within three days of the Minsk II agreement. Second, 14 days later, or within 14 days after that point, all heavy equipment, large caliber artillery and mortars, 
was to be withdrawn away from the line of contact. And then third, there was to be, quote, effective monitoring by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe uh, of the implementation of the ceasefire and the withdrawal. And what actually happened? Uh, you know, the ceasefire really didn't begin to take hold in any way until September, uh, what, six months after the agreement was reached, uh, where the Ukrainians were reporting as many as 200 ceasefire violations a day in August. It began to take hold somewhat in September, but you've had periodic flare-ups where you've seen the number of violations spike. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I do agree with um, Ambassador Regenbrecht that what you have there is a ceasefire now that is fragile. It's under pressure. Second, not all the heavy equipment was withdrawn, and some heavy equipment appears to have come back into the zone. And finally, the OSC is routinely denied access to all parts of occupied Donetsk and Luhansk. So you have those sorts of problems, and then, of course, you have the issues of little progress on the subsequent provisions of Minsk II in terms of political and economic and constitutional arrangements. Now, when you look at this, I, I think both sides have, have, have made violations, but when you look at what OSC says and other observers say, it's pretty clear that the bulk of the blame for the violations rests on the separatists and the Russians. Uh, and you, I think, even have basic questioning of the very premise of Minsk II. You've had leaders in both Donetsk and Luhansk say that they will not accept restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty. Mm -hmm. The whole point of Minsk II <laughs> is to allow restoration of Ukrainian sovereignty over Donetsk and Luhansk. And, uh, and as, as may, you may be aware, yesterday uh, the uh, Donetsk, or the so-called Donetsk People's Republic, issued its own passport. Mm -hmm which my guess is will be good for valid for trans for you know, entry into Russia, uh, maybe into South Ossetia, Transnistria, <laughs> but not anywhere else. Uh, it does seem to me that the main problem with North Korea. North Korea, well, I'm not even <laughs> sure of that one. Uh, in any case, it, it seems to me that the main problem really lies in, in Moscow here. Uh, it's, I think, incorrect analytically to suggest the separatists are free agents. They get mm -hmm. their leadership, their funding, their heavy weapons, their ammunition, and at times significant numbers of regular army troops from Russia. And if Russia wants to deliver a settlement, Moscow has it in its hands. The Kremlin can do that. And the problem here is there's been no serious sign over the last 13 months that Russia really wants to implement Minsk II. And it goes back in my mind to why did the Russians launch this operation in the first place? It was very different from Crimea. In the case of Crimea, I think <coughs> President Putin moved in something of a panic over what was going on in, in, in Kyiv, but the Russians very much wanted Crimea for a variety of historical and other reasons. There's been no indication in the last 13 months that the, or the last two years that the Russians want Donbass. Moscow sees Donbass not as a goal, but as a mechanism. It's mm -hmm. leverage to put pressure on Kyiv to distract to destabilize the government in Ukraine, to make it more difficult for that government to do the necessary economic and anti-corruption reforms, to make it more difficult for that government to implement the association agreement that would bring Ukraine closer to the European Union. And therefore, a frozen conflict, or what you see now a not-so-frozen conflict, likely best suits the Kremlin interests at the moment. Uh, now, to some extent, they, over the last six months, perhaps ratcheted down some of the violence, but part of that may be because they look at Kyiv and they see the political instability there generated by Ukrainians on their own, and there's a calculation they don't need to do much more. 
but a frozen conflict would allow them to ratchet that pressure up later on if they think it's important. Now, on the Ukrainian side, perhaps at least in the near term, a frozen conflict is perhaps not an unacceptable outcome. Because there is the question, you know, Ukraine cannot afford to do the economic rehabilitation of, of the Donbass. Mm -hmm. And certainly Ukraine, understandably, is not prepared to take on that economic burden when it does not have restoration of political sovereignty. And that's a totally understandable point. Now, here's where the, I think I might disagree a little bit, uh, yeah, because I have also heard over the last two years people in Kyiv say, maybe it's time to give up the Donbass. They don't think like us. It's different. Uh, I, I, and I can understand that, but I'd raise two points. One is, if Ukraine were to move in that direction, Ukraine should not do so unless it really, truly is prepared to give up those parts. Because my guess is, if you accept or you recognize the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic, you're going to do so in a way that makes it much harder to restore sovereignty, if that is, in fact, what the Ukrainian government wants to do. The second point, though, is it seems to me that that would not solve the Ukrainian problem. Because, A, Russia doesn't want Donbass, and there's also been no sign that Russia wants an independent Donbass. Russia sees that as leverage. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, if Ukraine gives it up, what does Russia then do to acquire new leverage? So. There, I think, a risk there. Now, it, it, it does seem to be that in the current situation, there is merit to the argument that you have to have fulfillment, or at least much better fulfillment, of the security conditions, the ceasefire, the withdrawal of heavy equipment, OSC monitoring, before you can expect Ukraine to move on to the other conditions that are set out in Minsk too. But having said that, um, there are things that the Ukrainian government ought to be doing anyway. First, decentralization, which I fear has become tangled up in this view that somehow decentralization of power is somehow a concession to the separatists in Donetsk and Luhansk. I don't think that's correct. 18 years ago, so well before this, when I was in Kyiv, we were pushing the Ukrainian government to decentralize. I think, John, you were doing the same thing. Uh, and when we talk about decentralization, let's just be clear, it's not the Russian concept of federalization. Decentralization entails macroeconomic policy, financial policy, um, defense policy, security, foreign policy. Those things remain in Kyiv. But there's a lot of authority that you ought to push down to the Oblast level and the municipal level simply because it makes sense in terms of efficient, uh, accountable governance. It's a smarter way to run the country. And it would make sense for Ukraine to be moved on that, even apart from the question of the Donbass and Minsk II, simply because it's going to make Ukraine a more effective democratic state. But I also believe it's important that, again, even while the security conditions have not been met, that Ukraine be doing and be seen to be doing as much as it can to implement Minsk II. Because in, in 2015, when the European Union had to look at extending sanctions on Russia, there was a pretty clear narrative. And that narrative said Minsk II is not being implemented because the Russians and the separatists have not done their part. The Kremlin desperately wants to change that narrative. And it's not going to be good for Ukraine come July when the European Union reconsiders economic sanctions. And there are some EU members who are questioning that as an extension 
And Ukraine does not want to be in a position where the Russians can say, we share responsibility. Because that will arm those in the European Union who would like to do away with the sanctions and, and make it more difficult for Chancellor Merkel and other EU members who, in fact, say that, yes, the sanctions should continue until Minsk II is fully implemented. And I guess I do just raise one last question. There, there is a larger question. Is how, how long do you continue to try to push Minsk II? Uh, all of the conditions were supposed to be realized by December 31st. Obviously, they weren't. It's been extended in 2016, as far as I know, without any set deadline. Uh, and, and so th there's a question, how long do you go before you say, well, the reality is this thing is not going to be successful? I think that for the time being, it's the only arrangement on the table. You ought to push it. But maybe the West ought to be thinking, are there ways that we can use what leverage we have uh, to increase the efforts? And certainly that begins with continuing the sanctions on Russia until Russia is really doing its part to implement the agreement. And although I think it would be a stretch, uh, perhaps even considering increasing some sanctions. It's also, I think, important for the West to continue to urge Ukraine that Ukraine needs to be doing you know, what it can in terms of moving towards Minsk II. And at least for the time being, trying to keep up the Normandy format to see if there's a possibility to find a settlement. But that's worth trying for a while. Based on the last 13 months, though, my expectations are pretty modest that we're going to see success. And at some point, we have to think, you know, what does come next? Steve, thank you very much. Uh, I'll take the prerogative of the chair to ask a quick question and a not-so-quick question. I've learned over the past two years to pay close attention to what's said by senior German officials. So, Johannes, my first question, it's a short one, is for you. I noticed when you talked about Minsk implementation uh, and you talked about the need for Ukraine to fulfill its requirements, you said, but Russia has to deliver first on security and on the question of the pseudo-elections that are being discussed for the, for the DNR. So I just want to confirm, you're, you're suggesting that comes first, is that correct? Russia meeting its requirements on the security side, the ones that, that Steve outlined, and then also making sure these elections don't take place. My point was that um, to make clear that um, we have to um, balance our messaging, um, meaning that uh, we must make clear at, at every moment, at each and every moment, that Russia is the responsible for the aggression. And uh, certainly Russia stands behind the separatists who are instruments of Moscow. This is, uh, must be very clear. So um, this also uh, to be told to our Ukrainian friends who sometimes keep us a little bit in suspicion to uh, exert more pressure, say, on Kiev than on Moscow. That is not true. I mean, it is extremely clear that the, where the responsibilities lie and where uh, is the main responsible for, for, for ceasefire violations and for the situation uh, as it uh, unfortunately uh, is. At, at the same time, um, I think it is key to... Um, um, the, the main point now, and I very much agree with uh, Steve Pfeiffer with, with almost everything what, what, what you said, um, I think um, Minsk, the Minsk agreements, uh, uh, including the, uh, the, uh, the package of measures of, of February of last year, they are the main game in town and the only um, framework and negotiated, negotiated agreement that is on the table. I don't see Minsk III that will not come into being, at least not in the foreseeable future. And um, when you look um, on the ground, what we have achieved in terms of instruments for um, 
monitoring the the ceasefire uh, regime, uh, uh, how fragile it might be, it is considerable. The the special monitoring mission of the OECE is there with almost 800 monitors are doing a, a very good job. The quality of the reporting um, made uh, some um, uh, steps, big steps uh, ahead in terms of, of quality in depth of, of observation. I, I think when you refer to these reports, you see exactly who is responsible and who is doing what, and you see exactly where the weak points are. And I, I, I think that when uh, focusing on security, um, we can do a lot. Um, key is once again uh, the um, ownership of the participants of the process. I mean, it is out of question, it is unacceptable when Moscow says, for example, that the normal deformant is just an oversight mechanism that would just accompany the process and the, that the main responsibility, uh, the main uh, kind of uh, leverage, um, the main channel would be the communication between Kiev and the separatists. Um, we uh, recall and will recall um, once more uh, that uh, we need the political responsibility of the heads of state and government and of the foreign ministers to agree on key points and to take the process forward. This is a political, it's a political process and uh, guidance is needed and consensus is be found, including with Russia. And this the last point I wanted to make, uh, in particularly, particularly to what uh, to what uh, Dr. Uh, Inosemtsev, uh, Vladislav Inosemtsev said. I think. Uh, Minsk was um, the instrument for getting Russia on board of the process. Uh, I mean, from the beginning of this uh, so-called hybrid conflict, uh, Russia tried to, to play a role in which it was no party of the conflict. It is party of the conflict, and Minsk is the framework for making clear that Russia is party of the conflict and uh, uh, took responsibilities and obligations as Kiev took. Um, so um, I think for the time being, it's the only game in town. And uh, uh, indeed, we have this um, uh, connections with the sanctions regime. Uh, I think it is key to stick to Minsk, uh, how difficult and cumbersome it might be in order to maintain the pressure through sanctions. Oh, thank you very much for that. All right. Um, I'm going to make one comment instead of a second question. I think it's, it's useful that uh, Dr. have brought up the notion of Ukraine casting off the, the LNR and the DNR, because this is very much part of the conversation. But I think it's actually a, a dangerous idea. One, because you don't want to legitimize the seizure of territory by force in Europe. Two, because in fact, while it's unclear, well, two is the point that Steve made, that if this were to happen, this gives the Kremlin reason to do other things in Ukraine. And as Paul Quinn Judge made clear in the first panel, the original conception in Moscow from his close talks there was actually to get that Novorossiya idea, not just to take this small chunk of Luhansk and Donetsk Oblast. And three, of course, and this comes back to things that, that Anders Aslan made clear on panel two, that in fact, um, the Kremlin's on the defensive. And at some point, that may have a very positive impact on what they do in Ukraine. And with that editorial comment, I'll give Adrian the first question, and then Grigori. Uh, 
first a brief comment brief and comment then a uh, question uh, for Ambassador uh, Reagan. Reagan. Um, so uh, the comment is on uh, Mr. Nozemsev's idea. I think there's a middle position, and that position would be for Ukraine to uh, seek uh, in courts, international courts, the designation of Russia as an occupying power with full responsibility for the well-being of these people, with full responsibility for the rebuilding of the infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera, and sue in international courts in addition to its other claims that it has done. It's kind of remarkable why Ukraine is not moving in that direction. It doesn't mean that they're ceding th their rights to the sovereignty over this territory, but it gives them an additional vehicle, and it, and it, and it creates really a proper understanding uh, in international institutions, international legal structures of what the, the state relationship is, which is kind of still ambiguous in this hybrid uh, situation. Ambassador Regenbrecht, uh, I am delighted. I, I welcome, I'm grateful for the opportunity to meet you from time to time, at, uh, but I'm grateful to be able to ask you a question without having to hop on and off a Paternoster. So uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the question is this. Uh, a couple days ago, uh, Victoria Newland uh, spoke about uh, her interpretation or the U.S. government's interpretation of proper sequencing, and that is uh, to have uh, the security issues resolved before the, uh, uh, you know, the constitutional and uh, uh, electoral issues resolved. Is there an internal discussion among uh, the allies and among the major uh, sort of Western uh, uh, um, countries that are engaged in uh, actively in uh, helping Ukraine, uh, have, you know, overcome this, uh, this uh, uh, threat and crisis uh, about what is the proper sequencing and what is the German position on uh, sequencing. Uh, do Ukrainians have to make the first move and then there are reciprocal? Because we don't really have a clear timeline and there's a lot of ambiguity on this and it seemed that Mrs. Newland was moving in a very precise uh, uh, direction in her comments. Johannes, did you hear the question? Yeah, yeah, um, uh, sure. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, thank you for the for the, for the question. Um, we uh, closely um, uh, coordinate our, our steps with uh, with with Washington and uh, first of all with uh, with Victoria Newland, of course, um, on on the sequencing issue. Certainly, this is a topic of discussion, particularly since uh, Kiev introduced um, some, some ideas on, on, on the proper sequencing uh, of things. Um, I, I think um, this exercise is certainly useful um, uh, in the um, kind of interpretation uh, exegesis exercise of Minsk and in uh, seeing how to put the things into the right order. Um, uh, at the same time, we should not be too dogmatic about sequencing because uh, it is obvious and clear to, to everybody that uh, certainly the security issue is the overarching um, concern uh, and the issue that has to be addressed sustainably before we can engage in a meaningful election process that would not be a kind of fake uh, process or something that, uh, that would not be sustainable. Uh, so this is clear. Um, um, uh, we, you don't need kind of highly elaborated roadmaps and sequencing timetables on, on, on that. Um, uh, secondly, um, what would prevent us or pro prevent Ukraine from uh, taking a more proactive approach on the election issue, for example? 
Um, fortunately, Ukraine does not pass its legislation on the constitutional amendments before tackling um, uh, legislation on, 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 on local elections in the Donbass um, in, um, um, with referring to the general um, uh, Ukrainian local election, law on uh, local elections. So um, there is no need now to, to focus on, on the difficult uh, constitutional amendment issue. But why not focus on the uh, election law? Why not taking a proactive issue? Why not coming up with a, with a draft uh, based on uh, Ukrainian law, based on OECE standards, as agreed uh, in Minsk, to gain the initiative on that? Because this is exactly the point. You, you, you look, uh, Moscow is leaning back reproaching and criticizing um, uh, Kiev, holding Kiev in non-compliance with Minsk, saying you don't do anything on constitutional reform, you don't do anything on preparing elections, uh, you are stuck uh, into your internal problems, etc. Look, and then we are being kept hostage uh, when it comes to the sanctions. Uh, and in order to, to respond to that uh, narrative in, in, in a constructive and proactive way, it, it, it would be extremely useful to gain more momentum, uh, say, on, 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 on the, the election issue, uh, while, of course, tackling security. Security is, is, is the, the overarching uh, concern and, and the key issue to be addressed. Um, once again, for that, uh, ownership uh, and political guidance is key. Uh, just uh, one, one example, um, uh, the special monitoring mission says that um, the, uh, we need to disengage uh, troops at the two or now three hotspots um, uh, along the contact line um, in the region of, of Donetsk, first of all, and Donetsk and demilitarized Donetsk airport. Uh, so the, the, the sites on the ground, the military people on the ground, um, including the representatives in the so-called JCCC, uh, say, no, no, we need to um, consult uh, with the military level. Um, so it's sent back to the military level and so on and so forth. I think people on the ground need to take decisions, military leaders need to take decisions to take the necessary steps to, to disengage, to, to recreate the necessary distance, to continue implementing the withdrawal of weapons, to take back the heavy and, and light weapons that are circulating and hovering, free-floating uh, in the security zone, to take them out of the, sec the security zone, to take the necessary steps. And, of course, for the, for the separatists, first of all, to open access uh, to the special monitoring mission, to create more forward patrol bases and to open access to the border. These are the steps that need to be taken, but at the same time, be more proactive on the political side in order not to deliver any pretext to Moscow. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Ambassador Regenbrecht. Uh, good to hear you. Uh, that's Grigory Nemiria. And uh, so there are two brief comments and then one question uh, to you. The brief comment, first comments has to do with the idea to cut off Donbass. I think that's uh, a non-starter because the sovereign state that voluntarily cuts off part of its territory, it confirms Putin's narrative that Ukraine is not a viable state. So I don't think any positive side uh, in this uh, scenario. Second uh, question in terms of the way forward. We discussed, Johannes, uh, in the previous panels, some ideas. You just said that uh, there is no such thing like Minsk III, so the only game in the town, uh, Minsk. Whatever, it's one plus one, which means two, or one. 
too. There's some ideas where like Minsk Plus. So I believe uh, instinctively, it's not yet something that's uh, well thought through, but instinctively and was inspired by debate here, that probably the way forward might be uh, not Minsk plus something, but something plus Minsk, when and if Minsk recalibrated uh, and enhanced in terms of addressing security issues. So in this way, I think there could be a way forward, but I'm not prepared uh, to think more about this, to tell more. My question to you, in terms of giving a breathing space to Minsk too, to show the benefit of the doubt what could be delivered. And I think there is something in between security package and political package per se that could be addressed as a sign of the goodwill. And this is the humanitarian issue, exchange of all for all. The question to you, especially because of most recent developments in the Savchenko, Nadia Savchenko uh, trial, to what extent you feel a readiness from the Russian part to really deliver on this and not to continue the mantra that Russia is not part of the problem, Savchenko has nothing to do with Donbas, and so on and so forth. Give us uh, an, uh, uh, your feeling to what extent we can accept, uh, uh, expect something concrete in terms of deliverables from the Russian side. And this is Russia's side we deliver in this. Uh, Grigori, uh, for, for, for mentioning um, these, these important points, I could add economy or since German coordinator uh, OECE coordinator is responsible for the for the working group on economy. That's uh, which is also very important. But humanitarian issues are extremely important and have a high could 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 develop a, a high added value when it comes to to the necessary uh, confidence building and and the fate of the of the people themselves, including uh, uh, Nadia Savchenko, uh, is of course deplorable, lamentable, and, and needs to be uh, tackled. Uh, and we need to 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 continue to give. Our, our full attention to this. I know Ambassador Frisch uh, from Switzerland uh, is, is doing a great job, but um, the, um, the, the, the progress is, is, is very difficult. Um, the, the, it is, the, the issue is overdue. Unfortunately, as you know, there is a link uh, between the amnesty issue um, and the, uh, the exchange uh, of, um, of prisoners, uh, of, of detainees. Um, um, we, uh, uh, following Minsk, there is no such link, and uh, the uh, exchange of hostages and of, 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 of detainees has to be um, conducted as soon as uh, possible, and we will use all our, our momentum, including when in Moscow next week, to, to recall that, that issue and to, 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 to try to, 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 to call on, on everybody involved to, to make this possible as soon as uh, uh, possible. Um, the humanitarian issues include the situation on the ground uh, in the so-called republics. Uh, as you know, there is very little progress when it comes to the access for humanitarian deliveries for uh, non-governmental organizations, including the UN family uh, to the uh, regions, particularly to the Luhansk region. So this, uh, there we, we urgently need progress in the interest of the, of the people uh, living there. And um, it um, would be extremely helpful to tackle, for example, um, to sorry to to improve the access uh, to these regions from the uh, government-controlled side, uh, particularly to the Lugansk region. As you know, uh, we we discussed in 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 our ministers discussed in Paris 
the issue of the uh, of the rehabilitation of the bridge in Stanitsa Luanska, uh, Stanitsa Luanska bridge, uh, in order to uh, to help people to and including humanitarian organizations to, to travel to the Lugansk region. So far, you need to go through Donetsk, as you know, and sometimes people even going out from uh, the Lugansk, uh, from the so-called People's Republic to the government-controlled side, uh, need to make a long detour. Um, they, they, they are losing 12 hours or more, even 24 hours to, to go to, go to the, to the government-controlled side. So we need a, a car bridge. Uh, there are for that security, of course, needs needs to be improved. All these issues uh, um, are uh, extremely uh, important, um, and I'm very thankful for for that for that question. We need to to give more support to Ambassador Frisch and to work on all levels uh, to improve that situation. Thank you, Steve or Slavia, want to comment on this? Uh, no. Okay. Questions. Please identify yourself. Uh, thank you very much, Nikolai Varbyov, Ukrainian journalist. And my question is not only to Johansson, but to all speakers. Uh, so uh, what do you think about the recent rumors, including from the president's administration in Kyiv, to appoint Mr. Akhmetov and Boyka as the governors of not, con of not controlled territories as a compromise? Because they are from, uh, I, I will remind to the other guests that they are former <coughs> former members of Party of Regions, and they uh, came from this, I mean, they were uh, how to say, just they were uh, leaders of this region, I would say. Yeah, so what do you think about, uh, what do you think about uh, their appointment, and what do you think, like, will be reaction of Ukrainian people, especially, because for us, I mean, for me, they're criminals, so, uh, but can it be a compromise between the West and inside Ukraine? Thank you. The question I would first ask is, is that likely to make it um, more probable that MINST II will be implemented? And again, I'm not sure that the appointment of those gentlemen as governors in, in that area would change the basic Kremlin calculus, which is, in my view, to use uh, the occupied territories as a means to put pressure on the government in Kyiv. Uh, and and I, it's, it's not clear to me that that would actually change that calculation, so I'm not sure that that kind of appointment helps solve the problem that we're talking about now, which is how do you move the Minsk II process forward and get a genuine settlement in eastern Ukraine? Slavik, what else? I do not comment on this. I can just briefly uh, say a couple of words on Mr. Nemir's remarks, which are actually very valuable. But uh, look, uh, my point is that I disagree with uh, Grigori in the point uh, that uh, uh, secession of Donbass will make Ukraine a failed state. We have a lot of examples in history of, of the same situation. For example, in 1962, I believe, Algeria, which was a part of France, a département de France, left the, the, the French Republic, and France is by no means a failed state today. I would even say that uh, 40 years, 30 years before, the Chinese government of Generalismus Chiang Kai-shi lost the whole China and kept only the tiny island of Taiwan, which was the Republic of China, and which was for 30 years more influential in economic terms in the world than China itself. And it was not a failed state at all. I would also say that Georgia is not a failed state, even uh, without Abkhazia and South Ossetia, and Azerbaijan is by no means a failed state without Karabakh. So this argument, I think, do simply doesn't work. 
And the point that uh, the Kremlin will go ahead, uh, for example, trying to, to regain Mariupol or Kharkiv, is also not very available because uh, everyone can remember what was uh, the time when Donetsk and Luhansk Republic were created. The referendum, so-called referendum in Donetsk and Luhansk was uh, made in, uh, conducted in May of 2014, just before uh, Mr. Mr. Poroshenko was elected to the presence of Ukraine. The Ukrainian state was at that time at disarray. At, at that time, it, was, it seemed to, to the Kremlin, to Moscow, that uh, it is omnipotent in the eastern part of Ukraine. Now, I think the Ukrainian state is, much better, is in, a, in a much better shape. The Ukrainian authorities in Kharkiv, Dnepropetrovsk, and Mariupol are much stronger. The na Ukrainian nation is much more united than it was in the days. So I will, and of course, there are sanctions and international, uh, you know, uh, international attitude towards Moscow, and Russia is in crisis. So I think all these factors do very unlikely that Russia will go ahead with their military means to have a new leverage on Ukraine. Um, Johannes, you want to comment? No, I would I, 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 I would abstain from from commenting. I, I, I even haven't heard that that, okay. that rumor. Um, and um, I, I would, in in, in responding uh, to Mr. Innocentsev um, uh, on the on the status of, of these territories, uh, I would um, very much lean and agree uh, with uh, with Mr. Nemiria and and with uh, Steve Pfeiffer on 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 that issue. Um, I think um, the the bottom line is, uh, or at the end of the day. Um, these territories are, as Steve Pfeiffer said, an instrument in the eyes of Russia to uh, exert influence on Ukraine in a way as to destabilize the, the country uh, and to uh, keep it uh, back from uh, its way towards um, uh, the European Union uh, and the uh, transatlantic trans structures. So um, I think the, the only way ahead for Ukraine and for us, the international community in support of Ukraine, is to, uh, to, to, to take a proactive approach uh, and to actively uh, reinstate uh, Ukraine's sovereignty on these territories. I, I think that's the only way ahead. It is difficult, it is cumbersome, it is challenging certainly, but I think that's the only way ahead because the, the Donbas and uh, including the, the Russian-backed separatists uh, will do not go away and they will not go away. So we need a, a framework for continuing negotiations and for restoring, hopefully, Ukraine's sovereignty. I think, though, in a number of the antecedents that you cited, I think in most of those cases, in fact, the government that lost the territory did not recognize, I mean, Georgia, for example, has not uh, recognized okay. South yeah. Ossetia and Abkhazia as any status other than breakaway republics and, and is given no special status. So I, I'm not sure that the, the parallel was there. Uh, I'd like to make one point in regard to the last question. Um, I remember in the spring of 14, when you had this, uh, you know, the Russian-led offensive making real progress against Ukraine, going beyond the current borders of the LNR and the DNR, taking Kramatorsk and Slavyansk. When, when Poroshenko announced that uh, he was going to name his governors, Taruta and Kolomoisky. I actually thought that was very good for Ukraine because they'd be able to rally uh, the East to stop the Russian aggression. And in fact, it turned out that way. Now, I'm not endorsing this latest proposal, but I think that in, in the still very difficult circumstance that Ukraine faces, pragmatism is very important 
And we should not simply rule things out or people out because of either associations they had or reputations they have. And with that, um, next question, which I think is, can please identify yourself. Thank you, yes. Ulrich, Ulrich Speck with the Transatlantic Academy at the GMF. I have a question to Ambassador Regenbrecht. Um, we all, I think, agree that supporting Ukraine is a main element in the equation, um, and it's a kind of competition between Russia and Ukraine who, who gets stronger during all the long Minsk process. And as you are in charge, Ambassador Regenbrecht, for uh, coordinating um, uh, reform efforts, support for reform from the German side, I would like, just like, like to ask you whether you, there's something that you you think is missing or could where could be done more in terms of Western support, US support to Ukraine, European support? Do you think uh, everything is on track? Are we doing enough? Uh, could we do more? Uh, or is it just uh, that the outsiders uh, have limited impact on a reform process? So wh where, where would you wish to see more? Thank you. Yeah, that's an important question being discussed currently uh, in, 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 in all circles. At the same time, unfortunately, we, we have to, to, to grapple with the, with the certain Ukraine fatigue in, in, in certain quarters. So that's also very important to, to work against uh, that, that Ukraine fatigue. And um, um, it is, um, I think, um, all in all, the, the support given by the international community, in particular, in particular the, 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 the support given by, by international organizations and, first of all, the IMF, but also World Bank and, and the European Union, uh, provides for the time being, I think, uh, uh, sufficient uh, means for Ukraine to work. Um, um, in this context, I think what we need to, to increase or to make more clear is the is the um, uh, the the connection uh, between the provision of funds and uh, the provision of the conduction uh, the conduct of projects on the one side and the conditionality linked to that on on on, on the other side uh, I think uh, our, uh, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian authorities are thankful for a certain monitoring uh, that we um, keep um, active in order to accompany um, and to follow upon the reform process in Ukraine. I think um, um, the, we, we need a kind of, or to make clear that we have a kind of compact between ourselves, the international community uh, on the one side and Ukraine on the other side on um, money uh, and provision of funds against good governance and fight against corruption. And uh, when we look to the current situation, it is key for us to continue supporting the reform-minded personalities and forces uh, within the government and within the Ukrainian authorities in order to continue that difficult path but that had been begun quite successfully last year and it needs to continue uh, in order to, to make Ukraine a success story. Anyone else want to comment? Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I have a comment and a question. Uh, I'm, for introduction's sake, I'm uh, Jock Mendoza-Wilson. I'm the Director of International Investor Relations for System Capital Management Group, which is the holding company for Mr. Akhmetov. Uh, my first is a comment. Um, uh, I would say that, you know, uh, 
People who have an understanding and political base and business base in Eastern Ukraine will undoubtedly be part of the solution of the reintegration of Donbass into Ukraine if Minsk is successful. Regarding the rumor in the media last week, it is just that. It is a rumor. All of the aspects of Minsk would need to be established, including elections having taken place before any governor covering those regions could be appointed. So I think it's speculation, and we should focus back on Minsk and its implementation at this point, and not be led away in the wrong direction by red herrings. My question, though, is primarily for Ambassador Regenbrecht. Johannes, um, in addition to my work, uh, I also sit on the humanitarian country team led by the UN, which coordinates all of the aid uh, for both government-held and non-government-held areas in Ukraine. One of our big concerns is this question of whether there is a possibility of the broadening of the humanitarian pipeline with greater access into both Lugansk and Donetsk. Mm. In the discussions that you've had and in your involvement also uh, in the Minsk process, have you seen or can you see a way in which that pipeline could be extended so that further aid could be delivered to those who need it most, particularly those in the gray areas and red areas which are have difficult access, which are close to the contact line. Is there any progress that you can see in that area in the short to medium term? Yeah, as I, as I, say, as I said, Jock, and, and thank you thank you very much for, for, for that for that question. Uh, as I said, um, we the, 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 the humanitarian working group under the leadership of, of Ambassador Frisch is, uh, is is closely following and working on on, on that issue um, the um, denial of access to to the to, to international organizations uh, I, to, to my knowledge only ICRC has access currently uh, the only exception of, of organizations having access is uh, are, are you guys uh, there um, and and mr Ahmedov's organization helping uh, helping uh, tens of thousands of, of people and and, and families uh, in particular in the Donetsk region, but uh, when it comes to the international community, uh, ex with the exception of ICRC um, uh, and uh, one organization, to my to my to my to my knowledge, uh, in the Donetsk region, uh, all the other organizations, including uh, the UN family, does not have access. And we had a lot of problems last year with the uh, with the organization Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, who did a terrific job. Uh, and who unfortunately had to leave, including the Lugansk region, uh, after a um, um, after um, um, groundless reproaches um, um, were made by the um, de facto authorities there against that that organization. Uh, I think um, it is opening the humanitarian channels and broadening broadening the access is key. Um, it must be uh, one. Of our main goals, um, as I said, it would be extremely helpful uh, if Ukraine took some steps to uh, reopen the, um, the 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 bridge, um, the car bridge um, uh, for vehicles in Stanitsia Luanska to open uh, to open a channel to to the Lua, to, to the Luansk region, um, and um, it um, would be um, helpful to um, intensify the rhythm. Uh, of the um, Ushat uh, bank buses paying out pensions for uh, pensioners um, living in the uh, separatist-controlled areas, 
um, we um, um, uh, are doing um, the Ukrainian side is quite actively uh, cooperating uh, in the framework of the economy working group. I um, um, would just mention our uh, work on um, the provision of, uh, of, of, of drinking water of rehab of the re concerning the rehabilitation of uh, water pipes in the Lugansk region. Now we tackle Donetsk. But once again, Donetsk will be difficult because uh, in, in, in that region where a lot of water, uh, water provision infrastructure lies, namely uh, Yasinovata, is uh, becoming one of the new hotspots with lots of fighting and with lots of, de lots of mines. So the, 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 the work in all the groups is closely interconnected because you cannot really have a breakthrough in the economic and in the humanitarian area without demining, for example. Uh, you cannot have the bank buses um, approaching all these regions. You cannot open a bridge in Stanitsya Luanska without uh, having a safe, um, a safe environment and a functioning and sustainable ceasefire. So we need to work on all these fronts. Um, I, I think that um, Mr. Ahmed, uh, that, uh, that, that, that people uh, mentioned, uh, mentioned before, uh, are playing a key role in the humanitarian working group. I think uh, um, this um, should be, we, we need some positive signals in the humanitarian field, including uh, detainees exchange, including humanitarian access to build up confidence for the political process and for the ceasefire. Uh, and this is mutually reinforcing. Without progress in one field, we won't have progress in the other field. Questions. Well, I have one for for the panel. Uh, we, we have been continually surprised by, uh, I would say, quick decision making in the Kremlin. I'm thinking, in particular, in relationship the decision which is intervene in Syria, and now the apparent decision to withdraw, at least partly, from Syria. Is this dexterity, this quick speed? Um, suggests we could see similar dexterity in relation to the Kremlin position on Ukraine and on the Donbass. I offer that to any of our panel members. Uh, I, I think you can expect this, but uh, I guess that the decisions about Syria, which was taken just two days ago, uh, was not spontaneous. Uh, it was caused by some you know, response of uh, the parties of Western powers and uh, looking on the dynamic in the region. So, of course, uh, if the uh, position of uh, European Union and the United States will change, and if uh, some more pressure on Moscow will be executed and some new initiatives will be put on the table, more realistic than means, maybe Mr. Putin may change his opinion, but not now, because now we are in the midst of nothing. All right, Steve? No, I, I think uh, Mr. Putin has developed the capacity to surprise, and I think to some extent he likes to surprise the West. <laughs> uh, so I don't totally exclude it, but again, a, a surprise change in the Russian position that might enable a more um, successful implementation of Minsk II would, would mean that the Kremlin really had shifted a, its position with regards to how it looked at the occupied portion of Donbass. And, and again, you know, they may surprise us. There are a few indications out there now that would suggest that that surprise is coming. That's mm -hmm. true. That's the nature of a surprise. That I is suppose. the nature <laughs> of a surprise, yes, yeah. All right. Any other questions from the audience? Well, oops. 
just one additional question, because the whole rumors issue, uh, and I, 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 I don't agree with the, the description of the gentleman that has been given, but it's about addresses the issue of representation. Who actually represents Donbass in those talks? So the logic of Minsk is uh, through political process, namely elections, to solve this issue of representation, which now we have, uh, um, as you said, the political package is, is kind of not very well developing. So, but uh, whether elections are the only way to solve the issue of representation. So whether uh, any uh, uh, thought given within Minsk or including um, walking groups uh, that if elections for some reasons are not going forward, various reasons, whether there is another way to solve the issue of representation. One could think of it, but my question whether there is uh, such uh, sort has been given, and if yes, what could be uh, um, uh, um, reasons? And that's why the people who has been mentioned seems to be uh, the idea is someone who are compatible, uh, knowledgeable, and will not be perceived by uh, various sides as something uh, um, not representable, whatever their past is. So that's why it's an addition. Uh, clearly, those rumors are not just uh, uh, rumors of, of rumors, but the reflection of the vacuum or lack of progress in solving the issue of representation. And unless this issue of representation is not solved, we don't see how this uh, uh, political process could go forward. I, I see what you're trying to get at there, but it seems to me that there, there are two challenges. Challenge number one is going to be finding somebody that in fact is acceptable to both sides. And my guess is that right now that subset with those circles overlay is, is pretty small. Uh, the second issue is then how does that, do those people have you know, something in terms of democratic legitimacy, which is the attraction of elections? Because the elections would allow the people of the occupied part of Donbass to, to, to voice their own preferences. So yeah, I think you've got to think through, you know, can you meet those two tests? If you can, there may be a way to go forward on that, but uh, those are two, I think, pretty difficult tests right now. Slava. Johannes, you want to take a shot at that too? Uh, I, I would say uh, the, the the same. I mean, the, the, that that issue um, was not uh, was not on the table uh, in, in in Minsk and is not um, on, on the table in the in the framework of the Normandy format. Certainly, everybody is open for creative solutions, um, and it, it 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 might be at a, um, a certain day. But I think it is key, really, to um, once again, as, as Chancellor Merkel always says, to to focus on the implementation of Minsk, since there's it's the main game in town, and it would be very good to um, to develop uh, to be more proactive uh, on 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 the election side. Uh, once again, there is no alternative to um, a democratically elected and legitimate legitimized representation through elections, and uh, we we have to see how we come to elections. Uh, um, we, we, everybody's aware they, they might not take place in the kind of next months or so. I'm quite careful on, on that issue because still we hope that we will have ele local elections by, by summer of this year. So 
we, we, we need to, to start and we need to engage in a meaningful negotiating process on the modalities of elections based on the law of Ukraine and based on OECE standards as uh, laid out in the um, uh, Minsk package of measures. And uh, there um, Ukraine could be, I would say, more active and, and putting more pressure on that. Okay, thank you. Over. Just I'm wondering, I mean, we have Minsk and sanctions, there's a lot of pressure. I'm just wondering how much of this pressure comes from the Russian side. I mean, we can live with, it's not a great situation, but I mean, we, we don't need to remove the sanctions this year. Um, we can just leave as the West, leave things in place, because we are ready. The Ukrainian side is ready. The Russian side is not ready. So do we need to hurry? Do we need to find an immediate solution? Is this the most burning problem? Or can we just wait? Uh, uh, strategic patience. <laughs> um, and see what, when, when, when the Russian side is ready. I, I, sometimes it, it feels to me that as if we put ourselves under too much pressure, maybe because we're not confident to be able to keep, uh, maintain a unity mm -hmm. on sanctions. Yeah. No, no, I, I, in one sense, I would agree because it does seem that the sanctions are, A, having an impact. How much of the 4% contraction in the Russian economy in 2015 was due to sanctions as opposed to the low price of oil? You know, I, I'm not smart enough to make that calculation, but I think it, it's clear that the sanctions are having an impact. I think Sergei Glazyev put the cost of the sanctions over the last two years at about $250 billion. And my guess is anything, he probably underestimates the cost. The impact of the sanctions will be cumulative. Uh, so there is an argument for being saying, you know, we don't have to be pushing things. But, but, I, but I do worry about the ability of the European Union to sustain support for sanctions. Uh, it would be, I think, very helpful to the process, but probably politically not possible. And Ambassador Regenbrecht would be smarter about this than I would. You know, if the European Union, rather than sort of putting itself through this process of every six months extending the sanctions, simply said the sanctions are on until Minsk II is implemented. Uh, and avoid this process where every six months the Russians say, well, if we do a little bit here and a little bit there, maybe pull some airplanes out of Syria, do we create circumstances in which those sanctions will come undone? And, and so part of the reason for things like my urging that Ukraine work in a proactive way in terms of its own uh, commitment and demonstrating that commitment to, to Minsk too, is to make it easier to keep those sanctions on. I completely agree uh, with Stephen uh, that uh, it will be much better if the European Union imposes sanctions for a period covering the whole timeline uh, uh, till implementation of the Minsk too. It's, it's, it yeah. will be very much better. But of course, no one is sure that the Europeans will extend them in, in June. So therefore, I think, yeah, either it is good if the Europeans are putting them for, for a long term or uh, if uh, the European uh, countries can afford this position of just waiting. Um, Johannes, you want to comment on this or better? Yeah, there, there, I would, uh, there I would hear f uh, clearly contradict uh, because or back to differ uh, because uh, sanctions are a political instrument and uh, so they are a political instrument only if they are being used in a flexible manner. So if they can be withdrawn, 
uh, or modified, altered um, at, um, at kind of within the foreseeable uh, time prospect. Um, and uh, so you would um, uh, kind of, uh, if, if you would freeze sanctions, uh, you would uh, you would give away that instrument, and and sanctions would be would become a cumbersome, uh, stumbling block that that could not be uh, used as a political instrument. So I would say, uh, um, anyhow, things are as they are. It is uh, certain certainly key for us to maintain political leadership and to convince our European partners uh, to um, to stick to the sanction regime uh, for the for the time being but at the same time being flexible once we see progress considerable progress on the ground and and minsk really uh, under implementation and uh, and being implemented i think when it comes to strategic patience um, looking to the situation on the ground uh, i said in my in my beginning uh, in, in my remarks from the beginning uh, that the ceasefire is still there, and we have a good kind of good kind of contractual framework for withdrawal of weapons, for storage of, of weapons in final concentration points, uh, of observation, monitoring, etc. But uh, the um, number of ceasefire violations is way too high. Um, uh, look to the to the current uh, SMM reports. Uh, and the situation um, threatens to, um, to, to go out of control, particularly when more and more weapons are being removed uh, from um, within, behind the withdrawal lines uh, to the um, security zone. And this is really a danger and, uh, and a great risk of things getting out of control once again as they stood uh, early uh, last year um, with the direct implications <coughs> For the for the security of not only of Ukraine but uh, even beyond of Ukraine, so I think it's key. It's in our interest to 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 remain focused, and uh, certainly when it comes to Normandy, uh, we have to keep the process going. Unfortunately, as I said, there is a lack of ownership by by all participants, and it's our task to 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 remain focused. Um, certainly, Steinmeier. And Merkel, uh, they they are highly focused, as you uh, saw, um, as, as you see the meeting with uh, Poroshenko in Brussels from today, uh, combining kind of the support uh, in the reform work on Ukraine, um, the the support in other fields when it comes to, for example, to visa liberalization on the one side and on the political side, on the Minsk implementation of the other side. We need to remain focused. The same holds true, for example. Uh, when it comes to 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 to, to the to, to the reforms, uh, I think we do not need more money for Ukraine, as uh, Mr. Soros asked for in this paper he distributed last year. Not necessarily more money, uh, because we see that even with the funds we have, uh, Ukraine uh, sometimes is uh, has difficulties to spend that money in in, in a meaningful way. And Jock, you are you are nodding. You know what I'm speaking about. Uh, I think it is key to remain focused and to be there, to be more present in Ukraine, including the high political level, uh, in order to make clear that 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 connection, that that Jungtim, as we say in Germany, between the support on the one side and the the ownership and the committed um, fight against corruption that we expect from our Ukraine friends on the other side. Thank you. One last question in the back. 
Uh, hi, my name is Dimitri. Uh, thank you. Very interesting discussion. I apologize. This may be kind of an ignorant question, or you may have already covered it because there's been a lot of information, and it's been great throughout the day. Thank you. So my question is about who decides the foreign policy in Ukraine? Is it President Poroshenko? Is it people behind him? Uh, who is it? A powerful foreign minister? I think in Russia it's fairly clear who calls the shots. But I'm just wondering how it's decided in Ukraine, kind of the mechanism behind it. I think the la in the Minsk, too, they kind of rushed to the table because of the military situation. Hopefully next time it's a little bit more structured and calm. I'm just wondering, how is foreign policy decided in Ukraine? Well, I, in my experience, it's been the president tends to have the, uh, the, the central authority for uh, decisions regarding foreign policy, and I think you saw that in Minsk, too. I mean, President Poroshenko was there, who was the one who negotiated and accepted the terms. On that... Um Johannes, any parting comment? No, no. It's, uh, Ambassador Pfeiffer told, told it, uh, explained it thoroughly, so I don't have anything to add on right. that. Um, Slava, anything else? No. I'd like to thank everyone very much for lasting with us through four and a half packed hours. And I'd like to thank our panelists for a wonderful discussion.